From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Earlier today, President Trump addressed the nation after Iran launched more than a dozen missiles at two Iraqi bases last night. The attacks on the bases, which house U.S. troops, was in retaliation for the American drone strike that killed a top Iranian general last week. In just a moment, I'll talk with Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama, who sits on the Armed Services Committee. Also, yesterday, we briefly discussed with Congressman Steve Scalise, an amicus brief filed by 207 members of Congress in support of a Louisiana clinic regulation law that requires abortionists to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. The law, which was challenged, is before the U.S. Supreme Court. Joining me later with the backstory on the regulation and its potential implications for the sanctity of human life is Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson. And FRC filed a friend of the court brief in the case of the Louisiana law. Travis Weber, FRC Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs, and Katherine Johnson, FRC's Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies, will join me in studio to discuss our recommendations to the court. And speaking of abortion, is there a connection between the presence and engagement of fathers and their daughters having abortions. We'll talk about it with Rob Swartzwalder of Regent University. And speaking of fathers, FRC is hosting our first Stand Courageous Men's Conference of 2020 this weekend uh, in my hometown of Baton Rouge at Jefferson Baptist Church, followed by conferences later this month in Kernersville, North Carolina, and Pensacola, Florida. Bishop Larry Jackson, one of the Promise Keepers' original speakers, is a part of the Stand Courageous team. And he joins me later here on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. You can find about uh, find all the resources from today's broadcast right there at TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is uh, at T. Perkins. All right, as I mentioned last night, Iran launched more than a dozen missiles at two Iraqi bases, which house U.S. troops in retaliation for the American airstrike that killed a top Iranian general last week. The president addressed the situation earlier today in a nationwide address. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. Joining me now with more is Congressman Mo Brooks. He represents the 5th District of Alabama, and he serves on the Armed Services Committee. Congressman Brooks, welcome back to Washington Watch. My pleasure. Um, your thoughts on what the president had to share with the nation today? Short term, the economic sanctions may work. Long term, I don't believe they have much of a chance of having the desired effect. And the reason I say that is because you have to look at the motivation for the Iranian country's bad conduct. And that motivation, in my judgment, is based on their adherence to fundamentalist Islam. That is a very aggressive uh, ideology. And they believe that they are commanded by God to do whatever must be done to either convert uh, non-believers to Islam or to exterminate those who are not. Uh, those who are not who are on the extermination list would be Christians, Jews, atheists, agnostics, just go down the list. And so when you've got a nation that is motivated by a fundamentalist religious ideology, um, 
I'd be surprised if economic sanctions caused them to discard their interpretations of the Koran. I mean, Congressman, when you look at what we've been dealing with really since 1979, and we've, every administration, Republican, Democrat, has basically had a containment policy as it pertained to uh, Iran. This being the first, it's really kind of directly challenged it. I mean, ultimately, is it going to require a regime change? It's going to require either a regime change in Iran or a change in the ideology that drives Iran to kill so many people. And when I say kill so many people, they either do it directly or they do it indirectly through their surrogates. They have shown a devout commitment to their belief system, and their belief system calls for the extermination of various peoples around the globe. And they have been aggressively pursuing that for four decades. And I, I don't see anything that has caused Iran's leadership to lessen their drive to fulfill what they believe is Allah's commandment. Now, Congressman uh, Brooks, the Iranians suggesting that this is just the first uh, retaliatory strike, that more is to come. What do we know about what they are planning or what they might be? Up to. Well, I just participated in a classified briefing uh, by a number of our intelligence, military, and State Department officials. I cannot disclose any of that, but Iran does have a variety of options. Short term, they may, this is me speaking, not classified information, short term, they may try to act like they desire peace. They may act like they're going to disregard their fundamentalist beliefs. But long term, I anticipate that their strategy will be to continue to impose on the rest of the world their religious ideology as they interpret it. How serious of a threat militarily are they to the United States and to our allies? In my judgment, Iran is the most serious military threat on the globe to the United States of America. And the reason I say that is because Iran is seeking military weaponry that puts them in an exclusive club, that club that has nuclear weapons and the missile systems needed to deliver them to various parts of the planet. And what has kept the peace amongst nuclear powers on the planet over the decades has been something called the mutually assured destruction doctrine. Right. If we attack you, you attack us. Both countries are exterminated. It's in effect suicide to launch a first strike. Therefore, there has been no first strike. Right. It's a deterrence. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you've had Iranian leaders over the years who have made statements that suggest that the destruction of Iran is not sufficient deterrence to cause Iran to attack first if, in so doing, they can take out Israel, with whom they call the little Satan, and take out the United States, whom they call the great Satan. And so if the mutually assured destruction doctrine does not work to deter Iran from actually using those nuclear weapons to impose their religious ideology, well, that's that's a situation, a circumstance that the world has not faced previously. Right. And I don't know how the world would react when you've got a nation that is making statements 
that they are willing to sacrifice themselves in the name of Allah if in so doing they can destroy the United States and destroy Israel. Yeah, and it, it, under those circumstances, I would not want to take a chance that they didn't mean what they said when they said that they would be willing to commit suicide if they could take down the United States and Israel with them. Yeah, I, I think we should have learned that after World War II. When someone says they're going to do something, we should take them at their word, especially when we're not dealing with, you know, some, a nation that fits in most of the uh, the models that you would use because you're not dealing with rational people. As you as you talked about earlier, they're driven by a, a, a radical uh, Islamic ideology. Uh, I want to go back to, for just a moment. We talked about the foreign policy that, in many ways, got us to this point, and the president made reference to that today in his address to the nation. I, I want to play this clip for you. Clip number three, please. Iran's hostilities substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013, and they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Instead of saying thank you to the United States, they chanted death to America. In fact, they chanted death to America the day the agreement was signed. Then Iran went on a terrorist spree, funded by the money from the deal, and created hell in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Are we going to be able to make up for that? I mean, the sanctions that have been on Iran since this administration came back in, clearly they're having an impact, but are they going to get us to where we need to be, or is, as they say, the genie already out of the bottle? Well, let's be clear, just as a matter of background. The $150-plus billion that Barack Obama gave Iran was used to a large degree to build up the weaponry that has been used to kill people in the Middle East with efforts by Iran to kill people beyond the Middle East. You may recall that there was even an assassination effort in Washington, D.C., uh, concerning a foreign national uh, who was here. Um, I, I, I don't believe that the current path that the United States is on is adequate, and the world is on, is adequate to stop the Iranians from doing what they believe God has commanded them to do. And as such, I am concerned that at some point in time, we may have to use force to ensure that Iran does not get the nuclear capability that Iran has asserted it wants and that it would use if it meant destruction of the United States and Israel. And so I, I, don't have a, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how it's going to ultimately work out. I will pray that God will inspire Iran to be more peaceful. But the last 40 years has shown it has no desire for peace. You may recall that just in the last year alone, Iran has inspired attacks on our embassy in Baghdad. Iran blew holes in uh, oil tankers in the Persian Gulf. Iran attacked uh, Saudi Arabia oil facilities with a number of missiles. Uh, Iran has engaged in any number of aggressive activities in the Middle East and beyond that has resulted in loss of life. Uh, I hope that Iran will understand that we are serious under President Trump and that we will fight back, uh, which is unlike what 
our president and our country has been doing over the last 15 to 20 years. And perhaps their knowledge that we will fight back, at least in the short term, will force Iran to be a more reasonable and a more peaceful nation on Earth. Time will tell whether that's the case. Congressman Brooks, one final question for you. Uh, at this moment in time, with what we know and what we uh, understand, how serious is the threat from Iran to the United States? Well, right now, Iran does not have nuclear capability, as far as we know. Iran does not have intercontinental ballistic missiles that would enable uh, Iran warheads to reach the United States of America. So right now, the United States is about as secure as we can be, keeping in mind that we had 9-11 18 years ago, uh, now 19 years ago. And we had over a thousand, well, we had thousands of Americans killed through terrorist activities that to some degree have been linked to Iran, uh, although I don't know if uh, Iran was one of the puppet masters uh, in uh, that endeavor. And so we have to be vigilant about terrorist activities Our men and women in uniform in the Middle East and certain parts of Asia and Africa, they have to be mindful that Iran behind the scenes is trying to attack and kill American men and women in uniform. Yes. But outside of those threats, I think we're fairly secure. Yes. However, that's today. Right. And this may be the moment in which we need to address it uh, head on. Uh, Congressman, we've got to leave it there. We're up against a break. I want to thank you for joining us. As always, great to talk with you. Folks, uh, find out more about Congressman Mel Brooks. Go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. Congressman Mike Johnson up next talking about an amicus brief that uh, 207 members of Congress has filed on the life issue. That's next. Join FRC Live via webcast for the 15th annual Pro-LifeCon Digital Action Summit. On January 24th from FRC's headquarters in Washington, you'll hear from political leaders, bloggers, journalists, and activists who will share how they view social media and other digital tools to further the pro-life message. You'll be empowered to better reach your own communities by learning best practices from those who are at the cutting edge of the digital pro-life movement. Tune in Friday, January 24th at 8 a.m. at ProLifeCon.com. We all need to be lectured sometimes. Family Research Council's new podcast features selected talks by top thinkers from the archives of the FRC Speaker Series. Our podcast podium takes on tough issues like religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture, all from a biblical worldview. Listen with us to the lecture, then stick around afterward as we break down the content. The Lecture Me podcast is available wherever podcasts are found. Or visit FRC.org slash podcasts. Ever hear the term toxic masculinity? Hello, this is Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council. Masculinity is under attack in our culture. The American Psychological Association released guidelines declaring traditional masculinity ideology as harmful. Brown University and Ivy League School offered a course, Unlearning Toxic Masculinity, explaining that rigid definitions of masculinity are toxic to men's health. In a University of Texas class, Masculine UT treated masculinity as if it were a mental health crisis. Thankfully, the culture does not have the last word on true masculinity. God does. Our Stand Courageous Men's Conferences offer biblical solutions to the crisis of manhood. We seek to help men develop character, cultivate habits, build relationships, and make commitments that will move them closer 
to God's design. Check out StandCourageous.com for an event in your area. That's StandCourageous.com. What are the truth? Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So glad to uh, have you with us today. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, at T. Perkins. All right, yesterday, uh, Congressman Steve Scalise, the minority whip, was on discussing a friend of the court brief that was submitted by 207 members of Congress on a Louisiana law dealing with abortion clinics and the requirement that doctors have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. Now, this is uh, obviously driven by a, a desire to protect women in case something goes wrong, that that doctor uh, has connections with a hospital. Uh, th- this didn't just come out of the blue, uh, although this is uh, now going to find its way before the Supreme Court because it's been challenged. This actually goes back, and I think I may have made reference to this yesterday, it goes back um, a little, almost, well, 20 years uh, to when I was in the state legislature and a, a young attorney just out of law school uh, had a client that uh, nearly died as a result of an abortion. And uh, working with a reporter who actually had been an intern for me when I was a reporter, she did some undercover work and revealed the unsanitary conditions of these abortion clinics, of this one in particular. And that laid the groundwork uh, for us to uh, to pass the first Abortion Clinic Regulation Act uh, in the state of Louisiana, which was the first iteration. I think now we're looking at like the third. Well, joining me now uh, is that young attorney who now happens to be the chairman of the Republican Study Committee here in Congress. Uh, he represents the area of Shreveport, Louisiana, and he's a frequent guest on the program, Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Congressman Johnson, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, Tony, it's a privilege to be with you as always, and I can't believe it's been 20 years. It seems like in some ways that was just yesterday, but it was quite a saga, wasn't it? Yeah, neither one of us had gray hair back then. Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's but but right. but this is, uh, of course, when we did that, it was actually controversial on both the left and the right that we would um, uh, bring these abortion clinics that at that time had no oversight into the same law that uh, oversaw the ambulatory regulatory, uh, the ambulatory surgical centers. Um, just basically, this was driven by a desire uh, to ensure basic health care standards for women. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was one of my first cases out of law school, I think, as you mentioned. And uh, it was uh, it, it began as just a uh, an injury case. This this poor lady had been maimed inside the Delta Women's Clinic in Baton Rouge, which at the time was the largest abortion provider in our state. They did a huge volume of abortions and uh, they were pretty notorious for having substandard practices. And when we began to discover, do the discovery in her case, to do a little investigation to figure out what exactly happened, we realized that there was actually a loophole in the law. And I couldn't believe it when we first stumbled upon it. And I, you know, took it to you. We talked about it. You were a young state rep at the time. And we, and we were stunned that apparently back in 1973, right, uh, on, in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade, a number of states, and apparently ours included, decided that they would remove the abortion clinics from coverage under the regular ambulatory surgical center laws. 
and hold them in abeyance for a while to just figure out, they said at the time, what to do after Roe v. Wade. And apparently in our state and in a number of others, they never went back and, and filled in that gap. There was a loophole in the law. So abortion clinics from somewhere around 1973, apparently to around 1998 in our state, went completely unregulated. So of course they were having uh, horrible unsanitary conditions. The, the video that you referenced was uh, the CBS TV affiliate, WAFB in Baton Rouge. They were able to get a camera inside the Delta Women's Clinic after a procedure day, and they got video, a famous video now, right. of rusted surgical instruments that they were using on these poor women. Uh, it, was, it was just a terrible, a complete health crisis, and it started a series of domino events that we're still seeing the effect of even today. Yeah, and I remember that video, first time uh, in the history of the state legislature, we actually played that video on the House floor there in Louisiana, which led to the overwhelming approval of the uh, the clinic regulatory provision, inserting it or uh, reinserting it into the ambulatory surgical center uh, regulations. Of course, we fast forward to where we are today. There were a couple of uh, 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 amendments to strengthen that, the admitting privileges within Certain, uh, within the 30-mile radius, that's been challenged. That now will take it before the Supreme Court. You, along with Steve Scalise, uh, were key in uh, getting your colleagues to sign on to this. What was the basis or the, the, the core of the argument that you made in that brief with the Supreme Court? Well, when all of those uh, dominoes began to fall back in uh, early 1999, when when you began to, to pass the enabling legislation to allow for clinic regulations in our state, a number of other states soon followed suit. Texas did and a number of others. And all of those regulations were immediately challenged by the abortion industry. They, they simply didn't want to be regulated. Why, you know, this is a cash cow operation. They had no oversight whatsoever. Uh, why would they want to have any of these uh, provisions in place? And so they challenged every one of them over and over and over. And for decades now, um, all of the states and all the common sense health and safety regulations that are put in place by state legislators to protect women, the safety and health of women the, the, who are in the most vulnerable, many of the most vulnerable situation times of their lives, they've all been challenged in court. And, and the abortion industry, the cartel, as some people call it, mm -hmm. has been very successful because they cherry pick their venues. They go to uh, federal courts that will be favorable, and they argue that it's a violation of a woman's right to choose and all that, an undue burden. And they've had so many of these common sense regulations struck down in the courts. So what the, 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 the present case, the Louisiana case that has been argued at the Supreme Court now, is, is a direct challenge to that. Not only is it a, a challenge to this common sense restriction that an abortion provider should have to have a, admitting privileges to a hospital within 30 miles. It's that specific regulation that's under review, but it is also the larger question of standing. And the Supreme Court has agreed to hear that issue. And the, and the and standing means uh, the, the, the arguments will be if the abortion industry itself has the right to challenge common sense safety regulations or if it has to be someone who is actually affected by it, right. like a woman who may be adversely affected one way or the other. If we get that second question answered the right way, it will be a dramatic sh change and a shift and the whole landscape of abortion regulation and abortion law in America. Going back 47 years, it's going to be fascinating to see where this goes and to think it started uh, 20 years ago uh, with uh, a first-year lawyer right out of law school. Uh, Congressman Mike Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. We're out of time, but uh, I'm sure we're going to revisit this issue. 
certainly will. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate you. Folks, we're back with more after this. back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Continuing the discussion about this important case before the Supreme Court. We talked about the congressional amicus brief that was filed. Uh, the Family Research Council also filed an amicus brief in this case because of the significance of the case and, as we were just talking about, kind of my role in the origins of this. Well, join me now in studio uh, with their analysis of uh, this case and of our amicus brief is Travis Weber, FRC's Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs, and Catherine Johnson, FRC's Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies. Travis, Catherine, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks, Tony. Thanks so much, Tony. All right, uh, let's start here, uh, Travis, with the, the 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 focus of the amicus that uh, FRC has filed in this case. Yeah, so I'm excited about our brief in this case. Uh, we make a number of arguments. We start out with making arguments that the challengers to this law should not even be able to get into court to challenge the law in the first place. This is what's known as a standing argument. In any case, in federal or state court, you need to meet the requirements of having been injured by the law and other requirements that enable you to be able to challenge it. And here you have um, abortion activists, abortion interests suing to challenge this law, supposedly claiming to represent women who want abortions. Yet, uh, as we argue in our brief, there's no uh, legal basis for them to be able to sue and challenge on behalf of these women. The women could go into court if they wanted to and file suit against this law. They have it. And this points to to part of our argument, which is that women may actually want uh, their uh, abortion providers to be governed with the same safety standards that other medical providers are are governed by. And they they shouldn't be beholden to the the presumption that abortion providers can speak for them. So the standing argument is important to our brief. We also argue that if the court uh, does rule in the merits of this case, a previous precedence like the whole woman's health case from Texas, they should overrule that case or rule or construe it very narrowly. And I feel optimistic about uh, our chances because of the, the new uh, makeup of the Supreme Court. Catherine, one of the uh, the approaches that so many states and probably because of the influence of the court have taken to the abortion issue, that it's been like hands off uh, as if they have no regulatory authority over that. That is uh, in large part what these types of laws have challenged. That's right. And the Supreme Court has held many times that the state has a recognized right to to regulate the medical industry, especially for purposes of promoting the medical ethics. It's not hard to see that it's entirely unethical that the abortion industry continues to prioritize profit and politics Mm -hmm. over women's health and safety. And Louisiana was well within its right to put an end to this and to require that women receive the same common sense, basic health and safety requirements as everyone else. And that's exactly what Louisiana did in passing this law. So a very significant case that uh, is going to be before the Supreme Court. Travis, why uh, is FRC, I know this is not the first time we've done this many times, but uh, filing a brief, what does it mean to file 
an amicus brief before the Supreme Court. Yes, this is uh, an amicus or amicus brief is known, it was known as a friend of the court brief. And, and you're basically telling the court, although we're not a party to the case, uh, here's our view on the matter, weighing in on, on behalf of, of one side in the case. Um, obviously, a lot of opponents, um, abortion interests, have filed briefs uh, on, on the side of this challenging law. But a lot of our friends, along with FRC, have filed briefs supporting law, supporting Louisiana's ability to defend this law. Uh, so it lets the court know what other um, it, it groups out there, what other interests um, uh, are, are making their voices known or have something to say on the matter. Court's going to particularly look for a unique argument that's not made in the party's briefs, also a unique uh, voice filing the brief. I feel that our brief is actually uh, making a very unique argument with the standing argument that I mentioned. It, it gets into the specifics about, in terms of showing the court, the justices on the court, why um, why we're correct in terms of their own precedents not requiring them to reach a certain result, uh, but actually allowing them to reach the result we want them to reach. So this this kind of thing enables the, the court to to possibly cite our brief, and because briefs are cited and relied on uh, by the court, it's going to mainly look to the party's briefing. But it's a chance for us to influence the outcome of the case and let the court know where we stand and speak for our followers around the country who want us to speak for them in Washington, D.C. And, and Catherine, I know it's a, it's a, a little technical, um, but when someone has a, a case before the Supreme Court, they're limited in the arguments they can make because there's only so many uh, pages or words that they get before the court. So these friend-of-the-court briefs that other organizations file on different aspects are very helpful. Yeah, they're incredibly important. As you said, that the litigants are limited in what they can say, and so these different groups can come in and make arguments that, might not flow as as well as the original argument the original litigants are making, and they can be very, very helpful to the justices. And as you pointed out, the, the court actually reads them. The, the court reads them, especially when you have an argument that is is uh, the court is going to view as particularly insightful not being made by the party. So, I'm Tony, I'm excited to see um, how our brief might impact the case, and we'll have to wait and see. We have arguments in early March in this case, and then probably decision by the end of June. Well, it's going to be a very significant case, uh, potentially one that could uh, reset the whole debate over abortion by sending it back to uh, the states. Travis, Catherine, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony, for having us. All right, folks, uh, don't go away. More Washington Watch to come. Is there a connection between fatherhood, the engagement, the presence of a father in the life of young girls connected to the abortion issue. We're going to talk about that, explore that, and then also Bishop Larry Jackson is going to be joining me after that to talk about the Stand Courageous Conference coming up this weekend in Baton Rouge. Still time to register for that. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Follow the links over. We've got Baton Rouge. we got North Carolina. we got Florida all coming up this month. Men, you need to be there. Women, you need to encourage your husbands and your men to be there as well. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Follow the links over. Don't go away. More Washington Watch to come right after this. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, 
transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. A strong case can now be made that China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith, especially Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong. The Chinese Communist Party's movement against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these human rights and religious freedom violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. That's frc.org slash China. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemicalabortion. Last year, my brother Josh, a 30... You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is uh, at T. Perkins. All right, uh, in, in, in a bit, I'm going to be joined by Bishop uh, Larry Jackson, one of the Stand Courageous uh, speakers um, with FRC. We're going to be in, as I mentioned, Baton Rouge this weekend for the first of our 2020 uh, men's conferences. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But really what is under the, the foundation for this is an understanding that fatherlessness is one of the most important, albeit ignored, social issues of our time. And it's not just the absence of fathers physically. It's often the just the emotional absence of fathers. You know, we were just talking about the the issue of abortion. And, you know, I'm thankful to say that we're very, very close, I believe, to seeing America return to being a predominantly pro-life nation. And that has significant repercussions. I mean, it's essentially it's as we talked about yesterday on the program, it's a America's repenting for abortion. By changing our policies. But key to that is recognizing the, the, the real source of the problem. And it really begins in the home. And nothing is more important in this than fathers. And joining me now to talk about this is uh, Rob Schwartzwaller. He is a senior lecturer for general education at uh, Regent University in Virginia Beach. Before uh, coming, uh, going to Regent, uh, Rob was a senior vice president here at the Family Research Council for more than seven years and previously served as chief of staff to two members of Congress. And while he was here at FRC, he authored many pieces. But today I want to discuss an issue analysis, how fatherlessness impacts early sexual activity teen pregnancy, and sexual abuse. Rob, welcome to Washington Watch. 
Thanks so much, Tony. It's great to be with you. Well, it's good to uh, good to hear your voice. Good to have you on the program. And this is an issue that I know you're passionate about. Uh, we've talked about this a number of times. But the role of fathers, when we talk about young girls, we talk about sexual activity, we talk about pregnancy, we talk about abortion, one of the, the most significant factors is the role of a father in the life of a young girl in determining what choices she will make when it comes to her sexuality, potential pregnancy, and abortion. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no question about that, Tony. All of the data indicate that a father in the home and a father who's involved and who's loving, who is active in his daughter's life, not only protects her, but he provides a model for the way that a man should behave toward a woman. Particularly, this is important with respect to marriage. If a young girl is raised in a home and sees her father not only loving her, but showing love to and respect for her mother, the father's wife, she is going to have the stage set for a strong, healthy relationship with her future husband. And she's going to recognize, by virtue of modeling as well as teaching, the importance of chastity, of fidelity, of loyalty, and of unselfishness. These are the things that a father can model, and no one else can really take his place. You know, and that's a message that, number one, is not told, but I would even go as far as to say is contradicted by the elitist culture that suggests that fathers are an accessory to parenthood, that, you know, really we don't need fathers. We can raise children on our own. And certainly there are some single mothers that are doing a great job. But the social science, the the empirical data makes very clear that a father is essential, just as a mother is, but essential in the life of young girls. And it's a call to men to not just, uh, you know, be a part of the process of producing children, but of raising them as well and being present in their lives. Again, absolutely right. And I think if you were to ask the great majority of single moms, would you like to have a husband and a father in the home who provides or helps provide, who loves, who honors, who um, shows interest and commitment, they would say yes. And it's interesting, Tony, to your point, a few years ago when he was president, Barack Obama uh, made a speech about fatherless or about fathers that was really quite good. But then he endorsed same-sex marriage, which in essence says that a child doesn't need a male and a female, father and mother. A child just needs two parents. That's a very contradictory message. And to your point, I think sometimes the cultural elites in our country by virtue of their own behavior contradict the very message that they're sending. Some of them, of course, engage in promiscuity and so forth, but many of them honor parenthood in the traditional sense. And that's a, that's a good thing, even if hypocritically they are affirming um, that children really don't need both a mom and a dad. Another, I think, key element to this is as we study male and female biology, their neurology, the way their brain works, it's very clear that there are distinct and undeniable differences. One of the reasons God gave a mother and a father in the, um, uh, in the Bible is children need the influence of both feminine and masculine in their lives to be well-balanced. And as you mentioned, the social science research vindicates this. 
children who have a mother and a father in the home have better results educationally, psychologically, uh, in the way that they conduct relationships in terms of their health and well-being. Um, really, all of the scientific data um, in terms of both medicine and um, psychology and so forth vindicate what Scripture has been telling us all along. Children need a mom and a dad. Yeah, in fact, if I recall the, the, the studies that would suggest that, you know, a lot of people, especially on the left, say, well, it, it's really an issue of poverty. If you just give them the right environment, things are going to work out. Uh, as I recall the studies, a number of studies that I've seen, that when you assess the factors related to sexual activity of adolescent girls, including age, race, and delinquency, they found that father involvement was the only factor that decreased the odds of engaging in sexual activity, and none of the other family processes was found to be statistically significant. I mean, meaning that this is, if you want to strike at the heart of the issue, it's fathers. That's yes, and and I think two things, with respect to the issue of poverty, there are many families in the United States um, of lower income who have stable family relationships, and their happiness and their well-being isn't measured by the amount of money they have or the amount of things they possess. Stability, love, security come from people, not from things. That's a very materialistic view of human nature, by the way. We are more than just mm. bodies that need um, nutritional replenishment and a roof over our heads. Those are essential, but we need a lot more than that because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We need relationship, and relationship starts in the home with a mom and a dad. Furthermore, if it's just a question of economics, why do so many upper-middle-income high schools have high rates of promiscuity, sexually transmitted disease, substance abuse? To say that this is all just a matter of um, providing people with, with more money or more resources um, really denies not only observable reality, but it denies human nature as God made it. Yes, absolutely. Well said. Rob Schwartzwalder, uh, great to talk with you, and thanks so much for coming on today. Really a privilege, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for all you're doing. All right. Thank you. Rob Schwartzwalder uh, at uh, Regent University. To find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. And, and, and this underscores why we have launched the Stand Courageous Men's Conferences. You know, the, the, the issue of manhood, masculinity, has been under attack in our culture for decades. But it's intensifying. And, and I've learned something. You know, I've been around a while now, and I've learned that when you, you begin to see these attacks, it's signaling something. When the left, when, when the culture attacks, you should take note. Why? Why is manhood under attack? Because it's, it's like in the military, command and control. You try to take out the command. Uh, because that's, if you take out the leaders, then there's confusion, there's chaos. If you take out the fathers in the home, if you take out the men, you have cultural chaos. What do we have today? Cultural chaos. Well, as I mentioned, as I mentioned coming up uh, this weekend, our first Stand Courageous Conference of 2020. It's going to be in Baton Rouge. It's going to be at Jefferson Baptist uh, church to find out more you can go to tonyperkins.com for all the details still room for you to register uh, wives be great to encourage your husband to attend uh, one of our uh, one of our team members who is uh, one of the, the original promise keeper speakers is a part of the stand courageous uh, team he's going to be with us uh, there in baton rouge we go on to north carolina we're going to be in florida later in the month but bishop larry jackson 
is uh, the founding pastor of Bethel Outreach International Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. In addition to speaking for Promise Keepers, he has written the book entitled Guilt-Free Living, Freedom from Lust and Perversion, and uh, looking forward to being with Bishop Jackson in Florida, uh, in uh, Baton Rouge this Friday. Bishop, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thank you, sir. It's good to be with you, Tony. I know this is a passion of yours. I mean, going back to the Promise Keepers days, and you've done other uh, events with us when it, as it pertains to men and to pastors. But, I mean, when you look at the attack, as I was just mentioning a moment ago, on manhood, on masculinity, it should suggest to us, it should be red flags to us saying that there's a reason that the culture is attacking manhood, because if they if they attack men and they take them out, the family is left prey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that's interesting, too, about this, um, Tony, that when we look at this thing, and I, and I, I love the analogy that you just made about um, the command center, um, men have been told by God to lead. God has given them a mandate to be the leaders in their home and in their communities. And so the enemy didn't sit around and twiddle his fingers concerning that command. He realized that I must stop that from happening. And the only way I can stop that from happening is to take out the ones that had the command. And, you know, um, I I know we're not at this point yet, but, um, you know, my subject doing this week is is how to provide. And the, the, the deal is, if he's not there, he's not being that provider that, he is supposed to be even for his home. And, you know, I, I tell women all the time in, in, in women's meetings that, you know, they literally have the easier of the two jobs because God told me to die for her. Mm-hmm. Um, he told her um, to submit to my life of death to, for her. And so if you take him out, you take out a lot of things. You take out the provision for the house and family. You take out the community you take out a whole lot of things. And so that's that's been a, uh, a focal point, if you will, for much of the the broader society to, to shut us up or to change who we really are. Well, since you brought up the topic that you'll be addressing at this weekend, Stand Courageous Conference, the provider, you know, some immediately go to, well, I bring home the paycheck, that's all I've got to do. That's not all that we're talking about when it comes to being a provider. Oh, absolutely not. Um um, one of the, you know, one of the things that he's going to have to first provide is spiritual um, um, insight, spiritual guidance, because his first place to connect um, was to with God. It's amazing that Adam is created um, by himself um, <laughs> so that he can have this relationship with God so that when the woman comes, everything is already provided for her so he can be that source for her. And, I, and so we, we, we're talking about not just the paycheck. We're talking about your life. We're talking about how you, how you spend time with the family. We're talking about all of that because that is the provision that he's supposed to be provide, giving unto his family. And, again, as we would say, into the broader community as well. Um, so when you just do business or you're just doing your job, going to work and coming home, but you're not a part of that family. We, we, we've lost something tremendously. In fact, we're going to be covering a uh, really five key points of what it means to be a 
a man from a standpoint of biblical masculinity. We're going to talk about being the protector, the provider, the Bishop Jackson just made reference to the instructor, the battle buddy, and the chaplain. Uh, in the home. Uh, General Jerry Boykin is going to be there with us as one of our, our speakers. Uh, Mark Sturmer is going to be there as well, local pastor there from Baton Rouge, as well as the host pastor, David Goza, uh, is going to be there. And um, uh, let me just ask you, we're almost out of time, but Bishop, those men that might be, um, you know, on the, the fence and think, ah, I don't know if I want to spend my time in another men's conference, what would you say to them? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, they, they, they desperately need to be here. I, I have as you mentioned, I've been a part of men's <laughs> events and men's movements for a very long time. And um, I had a I had a, a, a woman say to me the other day, um, she said, um, she was asking me again about Promise Keepers because, you know, fine, I'm a part of Promise Keepers. Everybody asked me about it. And, um, and, and then she made this statement. You know, um, a men's movement is needed more now than it was then. Mm. Mm. Um, Because even we were dealing with things, never had not escalated to this point that we were seen in the society as a disease. (laughs) That because I'm masculine, I'm now a disease on the society. And you're trying to do everything in your power to make me a hairy woman. <laughs> and so it, it is It is ridiculous on where this has gone. And, and yes. her statement was, we need men to stand up as men in, in churches. Yes. I, I, as I travel and I talk to men and I get them to, um, um, to engage, one of the things that they say, one of the things I find out more and more and more that women are looking for men to be men at church. Yes. And a lot of times we leave our masculinity on the other side of the door of the church, and that's what this meeting does. It gets there to help you understand how to be a man in every aspect of your life in those five areas. You will absolutely walk away from that place being well, blessed like never before. And we'll leave it at there, and I will see you in Baton Rouge on Friday. And, uh, men, I hope to see you there as well if you're in the area. That's all we have time for today. As always, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared and taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 